Welcome to Breakthrough with Brig, the podcast that teaches high-achieving Black women how to use thought work to break through barriers, get out of their own way, and become their best self in the most loving and sustainable way. Y'all ready? Let's dig in. I'm so excited. I have a special guest for you. I have a real treat. So, you know how we was talking about all things black and female? And I did my Angry Woman series. Well, because of that series, y'all know I had lots of drama about it. Someone reached out to me and I couldn't help but ask her to be on the podcast and like share her insights and her wisdom for. So you're just going to be able to listen to two women talk and chit chat and talk all the things. But I want to introduce my special podcast guest to you. And I'm gonna let her introduce her herself to you. Go ahead. Thank you. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. My name is Caritha Mitchell. I use she her pronouns. I am a professor of English at Ohio State University. And I've been there a little more than 15 years. But what I'm proudest of is that I was the first in my family to go to college, and I have published three books that I'm really proud of, the last of which is called From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Love it. Now, you know I had to go get the book, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I did. And I love the fact, like, when we talked, when you reached out to me, you said you were very familiar with the model. You even attended a couple of model thons. Tell me about your experience actually going to a model thon and what was that like? I know how my first one was. I was like, oh, I'm the only one here. And that's okay. Like, let's go. Wow. Well, you know, you're taking me back. It was mm-hmm. a powerful experience. I'll go straight to the heart of what happened for me there. I actually raised my hand to be coached live by Brooke. Mm-hmm. And the issue that I brought to her was the fact that for several years, I have been recruited by various universities. Mm-hmm. And I basically was in a situation at that point where even though I was constantly being recruited, nothing actually landed. Mm-hmm. And I was in this cycle of feeling like my self-worth was going up and down with that attention and then not having it pan out. And part of what Brooke did that was mind blowing <laughs> is, mm-hmm. you know, part of what she said was, so what is it that you think it will mean when you have this Ivy League school offer you a job? What will that mean? Because whatever that means Mm -hmm. is what you can have and feel right now. And that was really, really the beginning of a shift. I mean, I'll admit it's not like it took on the Mm -hmm. first try, as Mm -hmm. you made so clear and so helpfully on your podcast, you have to practice these things. You have to struggle with the thought. (laughs) You got to wrestle with a thought, right? (laughs) Exactly. And the thing that I'll say about that particular issue is that there were at least two other times after mm-hmm. that model thon mm-hmm. where it was specifically 
an Ivy League school that was reaching out. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that in the first one after the modelthon, I wasn't able to break out and really feel what I needed to feel mm-hmm. beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then the second time I was. And so that second time I was able to go through the experience, have the job offer, but not allow that to define everything and thereby really keep ownership. Because one of the things that Brooke said that blew my mind is she said, the way you're operating right now Mm -hmm. is whatever they offered you, you would probably take because Mm -hmm. you're giving your power to them right now. And I saw how right she was because of the first one that happened after the modelthon. Mm -hmm. It was only in the second one Mm -hmm. after the modelthon that I stayed clear where I was, had the offer, remained clear about what it would take to get me there, not just that you want me. And long story short, ended up in a much better situation. I'm clear about what my contributions are regardless. Yeah. And you do that so good in the book from slave cabins to the White House, right? Yeah. I saw it like I was reading it. I was like, oh, I love your thought on in your concept of homegrown citizenship, like we created our own belonging. And I'm like, oh, that's totally like I saw model work with that or thought work in that in in a sense that we just gave ourselves our own citizenship. Like we stopped asking for it. Yeah. So explain that concept. Thank you so much. I mean, the reason this is so crucial and the reason it goes so well with thought work Mm -hmm. is that I study violence. I have studied violence for my entire career. Mm -hmm. Um, My first book is called Living with Lynching. So I've been grappling with the record of how Black women have been bombarded with violence, Mm -hmm. both physical and discursive, and still somehow in many cases, not only survived, but thrived. And so from Slave Cabins to the White House is all about what are the practices that allowed them to do that? And so I think for me, what goes to the heart of why, you know, your point about how this is related to the model is that when you know that your every victory will be answered with violence. Surely it can't be, you know, wanting to belong to U.S. citizenship that's driving you. When you know that your every assertion of belonging in the slavery era, your assertion of personhood, right? every one of those assertions will be attacked. If that's the case, Mm -hmm. what are the practices you need to continue to pursue your own definitions of success. And that's what the book is about. And so it really is about watching the record that our ancestors left Mm -hmm. about how they found ways to, within the the little bit they could control, right? Because when I'm in the slavery era, look at how much they couldn't control. Right, right. But in the little bit that I can control, I'm going to take the reins and define that, right? So in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is published in 1861, Mm -hmm. it is mind-blowing to me what Harriet Jacobs achieves Mm -hmm. in a daily way, in the way that she wrote her story. And it just is an example of how our ancestors have found the tools, even though they didn't have the language we have. 
Right. And I just wanted to do some kind of honor to those practices. And that's why I call it practices of making oneself at home, right? Mm -hmm. That homemade citizenship is the result of those practices of making oneself at home. Because what is it that you can practice on a day-to-day basis? And part of it is simply saying, what are the things here that are truly within my control? And that's where I'm going to place my focus. I'm not going to focus on the way that this country has unjustly given this raggedy man this power over me. I'm not going to focus on the way that this country has set it up such that supposedly everything is my fault and my responsibility. That's going to happen, right? The point that you made so beautifully about the strong Black woman, that Mm -hmm. stereotype is there. Some people are going to see you through that lens. What is the part that you can control? And that's where we want to focus our energy. Right. So in other words, you're saying this isn't new. We've been doing this a very long time. (laughs) A very long time. And I think that is the gift that I felt like I got from having discovered work like yours Mm -hmm. and Brooke Castillo's is that it allowed me to see because I'm always studying history and the record Mm -hmm. and the literature, Mm -hmm. it allowed me to see how once again, Mm -hmm. our ancestors had given us a roadmap, but we just need the lens to be able to recognize it. Right. Right. I totally love that. And when I, when I read that, I was like, Oh man, that was so good. And it just brought back, you know, so many times where like, we really do make the best out of what we can control. And that's exactly what the model does. I'm like the first line of the model circumstance, what you can't control, but there are four other lines there where you have so much control of. And I like to think of it as like racism exists, systemic discrimination exists. Mm -hmm. Consequences of that, a lot of those we can't control, but what we can control is the emotional consequence, that Mm -hmm. hopelessness, that people pleasing, like we try to manipulate other people's thoughts about us through our actions and it never works. So when we realize that's what we're doing, then we can take our power back. Absolutely. I mean, one kind of revelation I had that's right in line with what you just described is And again, because I study violence and Mm -hmm. because I study violence, discursive violence too, right? The the violence of a stereotype that Mm -hmm. someone sees you in this way, regardless of what you actually are doing. That's a form of violence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I'm thinking about the way that I can just be living my life and sitting there Please talk about it please. without any kind of animus toward anyone. And yet someone read me as having an attitude. Right. It is absolutely astounding how I'm just existing. And mm-hmm. yet, nevertheless, somebody's convinced that I am angry and had an attitude. Mm-hmm. And so I finally got to the point where I was like, this is the reality that people have the power to read me in that way, regardless. And if that's the case, then certainly it doesn't make me make any sense for me to try to control their ability to do that. Right. So if I free myself of that responsibility and obligation, then look at everything else I have energy to do. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. It's like they're going to do it anyway. Like they're going to do it. Anyway. The humans. Yeah. We've been trying. We can't. And I think that's one of the things I work with so much. 
because you know, I work with high achieving black women and my clients usually come to me when they've reached, like they're in C-level, they're like in the offices and everything. These are PhDs, MDs, all of it. And it's like, they've been running, trying to do all the things thinking, if I keep doing this, then they're going to treat me a certain way. If I keep doing this, they're going to think of me a certain way. If I keep acting a certain way, mm-hmm. eventually like that line from uh, waiting to excel, I thought if I gave him and treated him this, he would do right by me. And Every black woman understood that line when Angela Bassett yes. said that. Like, no, yeah. that because we're using the wrong formula. And when we free ourselves from that, which the model definitely does, it's like, oh, they were always going to do and think how they were going to think. We weren't controlling them at all. And this is what I loved about the way you put that in terms of the wrong formula. Right. What I loved about that is it really goes to the heart. So for me, it's like, okay, if I can't control how they're going to see me, then what formula can I create that will make me happy? And so part of what has become so powerful for me is recognizing that we're going to work hard pretty much no matter what, right? Right. But what we haven't acknowledged is that The hard work that's worth doing is figuring out what it is that actually makes you happy, that Mm -hmm. actually serves you, that actually makes you feel like you're living into your purpose and living into your potential. That's the work I want to be able to do. And so part of what that means for me and in in the formulation that you offered, right, that was the wrong formula. What's my right formula? And so for me, it's about in a proactive way. How do I figure out what I feel is my purpose and how each thing I do can feed into me living into my purpose? So that's the formula that I've gotten really serious about trying to write literally every day. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's about that proactive move instead of the reactive where I'm trying to control somebody else's impression. No, I'm going to actually get really serious about my impression of myself Mm -hmm. and about my belief about how much I'm living into my potential and my purpose. That's the formula I want to be about. Exactly. Totally. I couldn't have said it any better. Totally. Yeah. And it's one of those things like to so many, it looks like that other formula works. It's like, we really think, especially as women, we think that like, if a man leaves us, if a man does whatever, it's because we were doing things Mm -hmm. or not doing things. If the job treats us right, it's because we were doing things. And it's like, we forget, like once we put it on the sea line and then let people be who they are, Mm-hmm. Then we come out of trying to manipulate other people's models, as you said, and like literally just go back and like, what's working for me? Where do I want to show up? And it's so freedom. I just think about all the energy, thinking about other people. If you just use that energy on you, if we just use that energy as black women on us, I just think it would be a completely different world if we just were able to release the cords of trying to manipulate thoughts of other people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take a side note because the other thing that you said in the book that I was like, wow, it probably wasn't even in a book. I think it was in your, the clip that you gave me between you and Brittany Cooper. Cooper. Right. When you talked about the character in 
the Black Panther, like he said the line. Oh, Killmonger. Yes. Please tell me about that. I just love that. <laughs> I was like, oh, we both like the people who stayed on the ship and the people who jumped off the ship equal, equal. But we tend to like give more credence to the ones who jumped ship. So interesting. Yeah. So what we were talking about there was my investment in offering us homemade citizenship as a framework partly because I'm invested in us honoring all of our ancestors. And so part of what has happened, I think, you know, especially in these days of social media, people like to say things like I'm not my ancestors to suggest that they are somehow more militant or brave or less submissive or less accommodating, Mm -hmm. which is laughable if you really know your history. But anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, but what I was interested in doing with homemade citizenship is a concept is to allow us to recognize all of the strategies that our ancestors had and that we can have today for navigating this really violent society. There's no question that it's a violent society and all of us have different ways of coping. So the Killmonger example was important because he represents that I'm not my ancestors, right? Mm -hmm. He basically says, well, I am more in line with the ancestors who jumped ship and knew that it was better than to be enslaved. And what I was saying is I honor those ancestors, but I also honor the ancestors who found a way to survive under these horrible circumstances. And there are different gradations of how they did that. Some of them clearly resisting in ways that were violent, others of them resisting in ways that were more sly, that looked like accommodation, other people resisting in other ways. And I just want us to be able to recognize the various ways that we cope and to honor each other in those various ways. As long as you are not a Candace Owens who is actively anti-Black, Mm-hmm. I have a lot of space for accommodating how you navigate this racist society. Right. And I believe homemade citizenship in looking back at our history and our current moment will give us ways to really honor the gradations of the strategies that we're forced to figure out for ourselves. Right. I love that because it was like, oh, like whoever, wherever our ancestors were, we get to honor however we decided like my grandmother was white presenting mm-hmm. like she passed for white she worked on a cruise ship but that's what she had to do to survive like mm-hmm. none of the kids can come to this cruise ship nobody could do that but so many people would be like oh she sold out but I'm like that's my ancestor right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in that time she did what she needed to do to survive I'm proud of her thank you Exactly. And I think it's about learning how to look at just how aggressive and violent the environment is. Right. And that's what I try to focus on. I try to make sure that we have an appreciation for how unjust the choices we have to make are. And I just think it's too easy for us to let that off the hook and criticize each other. And I just want us to have more tools to do less of that criticizing and more of that understanding. This is an unjust environment. How do we all find our different ways to contribute? Right. So good. So good. So there's another concept you talk about. I know you know where I'm getting ready to go. Know your place aggression. (laughs) How (laughs) can I not forget? Like, 
when I read that concept, I was like, yes. I remember being in anesthesia school in residency in a little small town in Texas. And I was with my attending at the time. I was still in residency and he couldn't find his pencil. And so I was like, I just made a little quick remark that you need a long pencil for your short memory. And the patient laughed. I laughed because it's just a little quip, right? Yeah. He was furious, mm-hmm. furious. And I was like, I remember the look he gave me, like, don't you ever. Mm-hmm. And we all have had that look where it's like, know your place aggression. Mm-hmm. And that was just a very innocent little thing, but we get it all the time, even on the big things. So talk about that concept. Yeah. I mean, you know, know your place aggression grew out of my study of lynching in all honesty, Mm -hmm. because what I learned in writing that first book is that you did not become a target of the mob because you had done something wrong and you were a criminal. You became a target of the mob because you were successful in some way. You were trying to get a fair price for your crop, for example, right? As a black man. No, 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 no. You don't know your proper place. Let me put you back in your proper place. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening is after I published that book and I was speaking about the book, I had a black gay man in the audience who basically said, This was a powerful presentation, but do you not realize that everything you described is happening today? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the torture and mutilation is happening to gay people right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know that, but I'm willing to learn from you about that. He proceeds to. Let me stop you there, because so many people would just go ahead and like skip over it or try to like to say, I don't know it. And I'm willing to talk to you about it. (laughs) I mean, everybody learned from that. Like everybody learned from that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he proceeds to over the next couple of weeks, send me newspaper article after newspaper article about anti LGBT violence. Mm -hmm. And I basically put everything in a folder And fast forward a couple years later, I ended up writing an article where I basically compared the similarities between lynching 100 years ago and anti-LGBT violence today. Mm. And what that did is it moved me from what I say in Living with Lynching, which is that Black success beckons the mob. It moved me from that to saying the success of marginalized groups inspires aggression as often as praise. And that is basically what know your place aggression is. Know your place aggression is the flexible, dynamic array of forces that answer the achievements of marginalized groups such that their success brings aggression as often as praise. And once I saw that, I saw how it manifested everywhere. If you're a straight white man and you're successful, we're all good. good. But you fall into any other yeah. category and we're going to need to put you back in your proper place the mm-hmm. moment we recognize your success, right? Mm-hmm. So even all of the excitement about voting for Trump and Pence because of their anti-LGBT agenda is an example of know your place aggression because mm-hmm. these LGBT people just think they're too human, think they have rights. Oh, let's put them back in their proper place. Right. And so 
Know Your Place Aggression just gave me the tools to understand that so much of what we experience is not because we've done something wrong. We get that hostility because we are succeeding and somebody wants to put us back in our proper place, right? So, so yeah, that has been life-changing for me because part of what it did is it allowed me to have so much less investment in what white folk think about me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because I started to see how much all of what they were doing was to try to put me back in my place because they recognized that I was actually meeting their own standards. That's the thing that's powerful about recognizing it, right? Is that Mm -hmm. here we are in the United States that Mm -hmm. tries to act like the model citizen is a straight white man, but Mm -hmm. in everything you say you're going to respect, he's falling down, whether it's morality, decency, I mean, you name it, they're not meeting the bar. Right. But here we are with everything against us more than meeting the bar. And right. that's why Know Your Place Aggression goes into, into effect because we are succeeding despite every obstacle they put in our way. Yes, yes. And I love the way that you put it in the book where you were like, they made the family, the nuclear family, white man, white woman, the standard and then dehumanized us, said that we were hypersexual and we weren't incapable of loving. And then soon as we started getting married as black people, it's like they kept moving the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, that Geico commercial where he's like, oh, you almost got it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the guy in the fishing thing yeah. he's like, almost you almost got it. It's like they kept moving the bar to the effect of. You said in the 1960s and 70s when we got voters right and we started getting housing and like we're starting to look like the American family. It was like, oh, then it was like, no, we are raised by welfare queens and Mm -hmm. emasculating Mm -hmm. matriarchs and like once again, destroying the image. And the thing is, is that most of the language that they use was never true. Yeah. And that's the reason why I talk about it in terms of discursive violence, right? Right. I want us to understand that when you insist that we are all welfare queens and emasculating matriarchs, when you do that, the point of it is to erase the many examples who actually live up to the standard you say. So, of course, part of what I'm invested in in this book is acknowledging that it doesn't actually make you more worthy of citizenship because you're straight and in a heteronormative nuclear family. It doesn't make you more worthy of that, but the United States says it makes you more worthy of that. Mm -hmm. And so because the United States says that is the reason why they try to erase how much we actually fit that standard. And so that's why the book focuses on canonical texts by Black women, because these canonical texts by Black women are actually invested in showing just how often we actually are living up to the standard they say they respect, but they attack those very examples. When we are doing what they say they respect, they attack that, right? And of course, Michelle and Barack Obama end up being a great example of that for me in the book. For sure. For sure. You want to talk about that? I loved it. Well, before I even get to that, I just want to say again that part of what strikes me about the Moynihan Report of 1965 and the way that people use that to talk about, you know, supposedly how we're Black matriarchs who are emasculating Black men, 
The reason we need to understand the power of that as violence is because it's an erasure of any reality so that right. even the welfare queen, the black woman historically who was used to make that stereotype, mm-hmm. even she gets erased by the stereotype of the welfare queen because what she actually did isn't represented by that label at all. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm invested in is us understanding that real life black women are deliberately erased by those stereotypes. And I want us to understand that as another form of violence and as another form of keeping us in our so-called proper place. That's why it's so important that we do the kind of thought work that you teach. That's where we can create the space we need so that all of that that's coming at us can't overtake us. Right. It can't yeah. overtake us. It right. can't make us forget our truth. It wants right. us to forget our truth. Right. It right. wants us to not recognize ourselves. Right. If you're living in the 60s, even if you're in a heteronormative nuclear family living mm-hmm. in the suburbs, you beat every odd to do that. But you don't see yourself reflected anywhere. Anywhere. You that's not an accident. Right. And I want us to see the fact that that's not an accident as part of this country's violence, as part of this country's investment in keeping us in our so-called proper place. Right, right. But when it comes to the Obamas, I mean, the examples are just countless. And, you know, I think the thing that's most important to me in the book about them is that two things, I guess. Number one, I wanted us to understand how Michelle Obama as the first Black first lady is very much in a tradition that we can trace back to at least the 1890s. And so I connect her to Black club women of the 1890s and early 1900s, because basically what these women did is, you know, they created basically old folks home for the elderly in the community. They created ways of creating healthcare and childcare and all kinds of things like that. They built institutions, as mm-hmm. Brittany Cooper says so powerfully in her book, Beyond Respectability. They were good at building institutions that supported Black communities. But they also, as club women, you know, kind of taught less educated Black women lessons around how to best comport yourself as a lady, how to dress, how to do your hair right, all for the uplift of the race. Mm -hmm. And today, of course, we call that respectability politics and we talk about it in, you know, less than flattering terms. But what I wanted us to understand is that it was one of those strategies. It was one of those traditions. And I just want us to recognize that you didn't have to be someone in the position of a Michelle Obama What she's doing is just another version of this earlier club work. And that is work that is in community. That is work that is about crossing those boundaries of education and class and everything. And it is about a kind of community-centered, sisterhood-centered, you know? And I just wanted us to recognize how... I'm not saying she's above reproach, but how what she does in so many ways we can see as part of a much longer tradition. And then, of course, the other part of it was just, you know, thinking about how there were 63 million Americans who were very committed to moving the country from having a mom in chief in Michelle Obama to having a predator in chief in Donald Trump. 
And that if you understand this country's investment and know your place aggression, you will not be so surprised at why those 63 million Americans were invested in doing that. But we continue, despite every odd against us, we continue, right? <laughs> right. I love the place that thought work has for this. For me personally, I think one of the things that it's done for me is giving me back my power, giving me back that stress level and that that rage because I don't watch the news anymore. Like I literally don't watch the news because like whatever is important, I'm going to I know I'm going to find out. And then I get to choose Mm -hmm. which way I want to go as opposed to being pinged by the news. Mm -hmm. But I see myself as more revolutionary now with a managed mind, with understanding and direction from like how I want to do that than I was when I was very reactive. Yeah. And I think it just allows me to like think long-term, like where is it that I want to do? And that's what my clients get to do. It's like they show up so much more powerfully. Matter Mm -hmm. of fact, like majority of my clients end up getting a raise or a leadership position within like six months or so or Mm -hmm. a year or so. Not because of anything other than they've just taken that weight off. What you're saying is like, I belong. Like that homegrown, like I belong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they just belong in their life, right? Yeah, yeah. I think part of what you have me thinking about is the way that, you know, what you teach goes to the heart of how much I've come to recognize that you can do the exact same activity Right. But it's the energy with which you do it that will determine if it depletes you or energizes you. Exactly. And that is what the power of thought work ends up being, right? Mm-hmm. It, it ends up being, you know what, on a proactive level, what I'm going to do is decide what is my reason for doing this? And do I like my reason? Exactly. <laughs> right. And when you tune into that, right. And you like your reason. Mm -hmm. Then when you do that thing, you're going to feel energized by it, not overwhelmed and depleted. Right. And the only reason why you're doing it is because you want to. It's like, and then the other thing is like, you no longer feel the pressure of what other people think. It's like, let them think. Like the best gift that I ever got from the life coach school was allow them or let them be wrong about you. That was so freeing for me. I was like, let them be wrong. You mean I don't have to fight? Every time somebody like has an opinion of me or like, I'm like, oh yeah. Yes. I'm going to let you be wrong about me. Yes. Uh, so freedom. Free. Yeah. Right. Just total freeing. And then understanding why there is that know your place aggression. I even look at, I was like, oh, they're so scared. Like I get it. The world has been formed in a way that served and there's a lot of change going on. And I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. no. yeah, you can live your life in that fear. You do that. You're free to do that. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Totally. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Stay over there. I can be over here. Anything else you want to say? I just love this conversation. Anything else? <laughs> this is so nice. Thank you. And thank you for actually engaging, engaging the book. The only other thing I would say is that, you know, I think part of why Know Your Place Aggression feels liberating for me, right? Because some people would think, well, if you're constantly seeing and recognizing the violence against us, isn't that depressing? 
And for me, it's actually quite liberating because first of all, it lets me know that I'm encountering something, not because I've done something wrong, but because somebody is, like you said, insecure and wanting to put me in my proper place. And it makes me less impressed with them, honestly, right? I mean, you know, I ended up talking about this in different terms for Time Magazine recently Mm -hmm. about the fact that I'm about to be promoted to full professor at my university, but I'm not actually all that impressed with the people who get to make the decision about my promotion because they've already disqualified themselves by holding themselves to lower standards than they hold me to, right? And so to my mind, again, it's an example of, I recognize the injustice of the situation, but recognizing that is actually freeing because it allows me to value my own assessment of myself than anybody else's. So that's very much in line with everything that you teach. I just want to end by saying that I'm thrilled that you're doing the work you're doing, you know, because I found the Life Coach School years ago and it just has been amazing to see Brooke support more coaches of color. And it's because of that change that I was able to find you. So mm-hmm. I'm just thrilled that you're doing your work in the world because I know this stuff is life changing. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I just love it for specifically my niche. Of course, I love black women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have just been taught to bear the load of everybody's pain. Yeah, everybody's. and. I just love the freedom that doing this work does. And I just can't wait to see how far we shine when we take, I like, there's a hill. There's definitely a hill of work to do, but we don't have to pick up boulders and go with it. Amen. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's what we do when we bring all of the other stuff. The thought work allows us, we still have to climb the hill, but at least we can drop those boulders. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Tell people, all the books, give them all the books, where to get them from. I want them supporting you totally. And how to contact you, follow her on Instagram, hunt her down, go see her. If she's (laughs) lecturing, go see her. She's magnificent. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm at Prof Corey, P-R-O-F-K-O-R-I, Prof Corey on Instagram as well. And my first book is called Living with Lynching. My second book is a scholarly edition of an 1892 novel by Francis E.W. Harper, and it's called Iola Leroy. It's fascinating. It's the kind of novel that teaches well, and so I did a scholarly edition of it. And then the latest book, as you said, is From Slave Cabins to the White House. So those are the books, and it's easy to find me, too, on CarithaMitchell.com, and I try to keep that updated. So yeah. I'm easy to find. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to take thought work even deeper with me as your guide, opportunities to work with me one-on-one are available. Go to brickjohnson.com to schedule your own personal breakthrough call. In 30 minutes, we'll see if working together is a great fit. BrickJohnson.com. B-R-I-G-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. See you next time.